Please turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Psalm 72. That will be our Old Testament reading for this morning. Our New Testament reading will be Revelation uh, chapter 20. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Psalm 72, verses 1 through 14. Give the King your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the King's Son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure. Throughout all generations, he shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. Excuse me. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy. He will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And I think you can see very clearly allusions there to our Lord Jesus Christ and His great reign. We're going to sing uh, our closing hymn. will be based on Psalm 72, that Christ shall have dominion. But let's see how this plays out now in Revelation chapter 20. Our text will be just the first six verses as we uh, look at uh, the dragon bound for a thousand years, the millennium. But let's hear again the Word of God. From the New Testament, Revelation 20, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
And I saw a great white throne, and he who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was, no, there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to gather here this morning. And we're thankful to be able to worship you. We're thankful, Lord, for your word. For you have spoken to us. And we pray that that Word would be effective in our hearts and lives this day. Help us to hear, Lord, Your Word to us. And help us upon that Word to base our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. It's always a thrill when you see the sermon's not there. So, yeah. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we come to the seventh and the final vision of the apocalypse of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is going to bring us to the end of the book of Revelation. You know, this isn't the right... Hold on a second. Yeah. I had trouble with this this morning. <laughs> okay. And the reason I know that is because I had a little comment right here that I inserted. <laughs> I can't believe we've made it this far. Uh, you know, we come now to the 20th chapter. Uh, probably this is one of the most complex. Probably one of the most... <clears throat> excuse me. One of the most fought over texts in all of scriptures. There has been a lot of ink spilt over these words that we're coming to this morning, especially when it comes to the meaning of the millennium. So I want to give you a quick review once again. Uh, In chapter 1, we have the prologue, remember? We're introduced to the Son of Man. We're introduced to Christ in all of His glory as He walks in the midst of the lampstands, which represent the churches of our Savior. The churches are described for us in chapters 2 and 3. And we have there not a chronology of church history, but a catalog of the churches, what they have been, what they are, and what they will be until the day that Christ returns again. There are good churches and there are bad churches. And Christ has much to say to them. But this is the way the church will be until the day of Christ's second coming, which the church are reminded that they are to prepare for. And that fact, they're even warned about if they continue in their sinful ways. So this is the first vision that comes with the first coming of Christ and it lasts till His second coming. Um, The second vision begins in chapter 4 and there in chapter 4 we're given this picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that makes it clear that the Son of Man whom we met in chapter 1 is the Lamb who is worthy to receive glory and honor and praise because of His great work of redemption, all of which is revealed for us in chapter 5. And so it's the Lamb whom we must worship. It's the Lamb whom we must obey above all because He is over all. 
In chapter 6 and 7, which wind up the second vision, we have a description of the judgments that are coming on this wicked world as the seals are open. In fact, they are already have been, are, and continue to be. And they will culminate, as we see in all of these visions, in the final judgment. And this all ends with the church triumphant. With the church, we see the joy of the church, this multitude without number that gives praise and glory and honor to God, and they do so forever and ever. In chapters 8-11, through 11, we come to the third vision where we've seen uh, that we see the seven trumpets. We've already seen this. And it shows us how the intensity of the wrath of God against this world is growing. And this too ends with a picture of the final judgment of the world and the glory that follows for those who are in Christ. In fact, chapters 1-11 through 11 end of the, the first major division of the book of Revelation. Chapter 12 begins the second major division that runs through the end of the book. And yet there's this connection between the two uh, divisions, between chapter 11 and chapter 12 that I uh, noticed recently. In chapter 11, if you remember, you have two witnesses. that they, are, uh, they represent the witness of the visible church as she proclaims the gospel. And we're told there that they, they prophesy for how long? For 100 for 1,260 days. And then in chapter 12, you have this glorious woman who gives birth to the Christ child. And what happens after the birth of Christ, after He has been caught up, into, to, up, up to God in His throne, what happens then? We're told that the woman flees into the wilderness. That is, she flees into this world, the age in which we're now living in, and God has prepared a place for her there to be fed for how long? For 1,260 days. And so, so the point of both of these time periods, it's really the same, that they represent this present gospel age, this time between Christ's first coming and His second coming, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is going forth to the four corners of the earth. So again, chapter 12 begins the fourth vision. And there we meet the dragon. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who, who deceives the whole world. That's how he's described there, right? He's the sworn enemy of God's people. And then in chapters 13 and 14, we meet other enemies. We need, meet the beast out of the sea, the beast out of the earth who's the false prophet. We meet the harlot Babylon. And then we meet the last enemies, those who worship the beast and receive his mark. And so these enemies of Christ, these enemies of God's people, are vanquished in reverse order when we've seen that uh, so far, right? But in the first part of chapter 14, you may remember, as we come to the end of that vision, we have this picture of the church triumphant. And that's given to us to comfort us as we wait for the final judgment that we see once again at the end of that chapter. Chapters 15 and 16 make up the fifth vision. They show us uh, the seven bowls of the wrath of God being poured out on the wicked of this world. Those who worship and serve the beast. Those who have His mark. They, uh, we see their judgment first. The judgment is severe, and yet we're told there what happens. That mankind refuses to repent of their sin. And that their final judgment is once more described for us at the end of chapter 16. In chapter 17 through 19, we have the sixth vision where the wrath of God falls upon the harlot, upon Babylon, the, the worldwide program of anti-Christian seduction in this world. And that um, 
wrath is described further, her fall in great detail in chapter 18. And then we come to chapter 19, which we just finished. And we have again a picture of the church triumphant at the beginning of the chapter, just as we did back in chapter 14. And then that's followed by the the cause, the reason for the church's enjoyment in heaven. You find that in the last part where we see Christ Jesus, our Lord, the word of God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, casting the beast and the false prophet alive into the lake of burning with the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, excuse me. And so all of the enemies of God's people, all the enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ, all the enemies of God himself have been punished and punished most severely. All except one. There still remains the dragon, that serpent of old. And that's where we're headed at in this last vision in the book of the Revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so my theme for the the first part of chapter 20, first six verses, will be that the dragon is bound for a thousand years by the work and power, and we could even add the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will look at the binding of Satan in verses 1 through 3, and then the reigning of Christ in verses 4 through 6. So as we begin chapter 20, let's understand that we we are again, we're returning to the beginning of the present dispensation. That is the time period that began with the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and that ends with his second coming, this present time. And actually, in, in one of the rare times when almost all of the commentators agree, we find that in chapter 19 that we just finished with it, as it brings us to the final judgment and the end of the age, they all agree that that's what that is. So now we move on to chapter 20. And as we do, it becomes clear because of what it says in the text, what it says in the Bible, that this is not a continuing chronology. This is not continuing chronologically, okay? But it is, it, it is once more going to start over. It's a, it's a recapitulation. It's a new vision, repeating very, uh, previous visions, and yet this vision will go further into the final state of glory than anything that has gone before. <clears throat> One way that we might look at this that I heard recently was that we might look at this as seven different takes of the same movie. That it's take one, take two, take three, and so on. And each take of this is really of the same scene, and yet it looks at it from a slightly different angle to give us a slightly different emphasis. The main theme, as we've seen, is the lamb wins, right? That's, that's the real short theme of it. Or as we have it in chapter 11, verse 15, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And this theme is really kind of reviewed. It's supported time and time again as we've worked our way through each vision of the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you may remember here that chapter 11 announces the final judgment in verse 18. Your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged. And then in chapter 12... We see this new vision again, right? So it speaks clearly of the birth of the Christ child. We're introduced there to the dragon who tries to destroy the child. Uh, and, and that brings us back to the beginning of the New Testament period. As Revelation 12 really describes the birth, the ascension, and the coronation, the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have several parallels in chapters uh, through, uh, 11 through 14, and of course here in chapter 20. I'm not really going to go into those at this time. But I want you to notice the, the scene here, the sequence in chapter 20 is Christ's first coming, which is at the time when Satan is bound, and that's followed by Satan's little season, which in turn is followed by Christ's second coming, that is, His coming in judgment. So, let's see how this begins in chapter 20 and why I can say that this chapter begins again with the first uh, coming of Christ. Let me read verses 1-3 through again. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So John sees this angel. He sees this messenger coming down from heaven. This is another sign. We've seen this happen over and over. That this is a new vision. The angel has a key to the bottomless pit or to the abyss. And the opening of this abyss can be locked and sealed. But, you know, we have to remember here, this is symbolism. The angel lays hold of the dragon, right? And you'll notice two things about that. The dragon is clearly identified for us. So that you and I know exactly who this is. He is that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan. And and the second thing we should notice is that the angel has no trouble here, no problem handling the dragon. He grabs him. You know, in my mind, I think he grabs him by the throat, right? And he binds him with this chain, which, you know, the, the thought occurred to me that maybe that's the gospel itself. And yet that's just the beginning, isn't it? Because the dragon is not only bound for a thousand years, he's, he, he's cast into this bottomless pit. And the opening is shut. It's sealed so that he can, and here's the purpose, so that he can no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years are over. And when that time is done, then the dragon will be released for a little while, for a short time. This morning I thought, You know, that means you might remember if you're old like me, you might remember that you can't say the devil made me do it, right? He's been bound. Okay, we can't say that. It's a sin that resides within us. So so what does all this mean? What, What is the meaning of this sign, this symbol, this first part of the seventh vision? And remember, if if the key and the bottomless pit and and the chain and the binding of the dragon are symbols, then so is a thousand years. It's a symbolic number. We've seen this before throughout the book of Revelation. It's 10 times 10 times 10, meaning a long period of time. Now, the first place for us to start is to ask, what is this symbol that we have here in this vision? What did it mean to the first hearers and the first readers of this book of the revelation of Jesus Christ by those who lived in John's day? What was the world like in the days of the Apostle John? It was a world of darkness. Rome and the world around it were filled with all manner of abominations and filth and corruption. Pagan temples filled the cities. And the superstition uh, and evil of that time, they were truly staggering. And the Apostle Paul says in uh, Acts 14.6, God in begot generations... 
uh, allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. They were left to themselves. In fact, we see the same thing in the Old Testament, really. That the light of the Word of God and, and all of God's promises of salvation, they were given to who? To one man. To Abraham. And then to his descendants after him, right? And the history of redemption in the Old Testament deals only with one nation. And the rest of the world is under the the rule and the dominion of Satan, that serpent of old, the dragon, the devil. In fact, the darkness in the Old Testament was almost beyond belief as well. And at times it it was very close to snuffing out the little light that was left in Israel. The serpent tried to do that by their slavery in Egypt, by the the wicked nations in Canaan, by the the kingdoms of man that followed later, by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and finally the Romans. And so the question is this, will this dominion of the dragon go on forever? Will the devil continue to rule over the world? Will the promised Redeemer And His glorious Gospel, will it ever come? And as the days grew darker and darker, as even the the religion of the Jews became more and more a matter of unbelief on the part of the Sadducees, and works righteousness on the part of the Pharisees, what happened? God sent forth His Son into this wicked and darkened world to bring the true light of the Gospel in a way that could not be overcome, that could not be stopped by men, not by the nations of this world, and not even by the dragon himself. Why? Why is that true? Because Christ has come and He has bound Satan, the dragon. Now, this, this binding of the dragon is not really something new. It's, it's not something that was never revealed before. It was promised in the Old Testament over and over. It, it begins at the beginning, as most things do. Remember, what? what did God say to the serpent? The one who led our first parents into sin, deceived them. Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, which is Christ, He shall bruise, He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise His heel. And when did that happen? When did the promised Redeemer crush the serpent's head? At His first coming. You know, I think sometimes we just try to limit this to the cross. But really, it's it's the first coming of Christ in its entirety that was the binding of Satan, of the dragon. We also have uh, Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, where the Lord says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So that's the Father's promise to the promised Son. Now, I I know that maybe if you've ever dealt with uh, Jehovah false witnesses, you know that they will try to use this verse to prove that, well, Jesus is not God with a capital G, but a God with a little g, which is impossible. But 
They say that this proves that he was created, right? It says he was begotten, right? But I would point this out to you. In Acts 13.33, the Apostle Paul, is in his preaching, applies this text from Psalm 2, today I have begotten you, not to some time uh, before the world was made, and not to the birth of Christ here on earth, but the Apostle Paul applies it to Christ's ascension into heaven. That's what that refers to. And Christ's ascension is His exaltation to rule over all the nations as Psalm 2 predicts. And to that I can add Psalm 72 that we read earlier. And and the words that we're going to sing uh, in the hymn, Christ shall have dominion, based on Psalm 72. So this dominion is not something that occurs after His second coming. It actually begins with His first coming. Let me point out to you a few more proofs just from our Lord Himself. Uh, In in Luke 10, when the 70 disciples return from their preaching mission, and they come with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. Remember, what did Jesus say to them? Luke 10, verses 18-20, through And He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. That's truly the greatest thing for us to rejoice in, isn't it? But but the missionary activity of the 70 disciples, you'll notice it is associated, Jesus refers to it, with the falling of Satan from heaven which is significant in light of our text here in Revelation 20. You may also remember that Jesus, when He started casting out demons, the religious leaders said, well, He does so by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And you remember what Jesus said in response? Well, He said, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. But then He went on to say, Matthew 12, verses 28-30, through but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you, So the kingdom of God has come. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. And you'll notice that the wording here is just like that of Revelation 20. In fact, the word used for bind is the same as as in verse 2 of our text. Bound him for a thousand years. The binding of Satan, if we want to really try to pinpoint it, maybe we could say it began at the temptation of Christ as He's beginning His public ministry. Remember, when when Satan offered Him the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and you can have all this without the cross, all you have to do is bow down and worship Me. And what was the response of Jesus? Matthew 4.10 Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan! For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. Now it is critical for us to realize how important God's Word is in our spiritual battles, in our spiritual lives, and how much we need to hide it in our hearts. But what I want to point out to you here is what was the response of Satan to the words of Jesus? What did he do? What did he have to do? The text says, then the devil left him. Christ commanded him to leave. And he left. He had to leave. 
He's plundering his house. And that's what we see happen from this point on, right? This binding and plundering of the house of Satan throughout the ministry of Jesus continues from this time on. He crushes the serpent's head more and more, plundering his kingdom, and it all culminates, we would say, in the cross. And so what does Jesus do? Well, after his resurrection, he sends out his disciples once again. His troops, as it were. Maybe we'd say his shock troops, right? And he sends them out to the four corners of the earth. As Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Not will be given, but has been given. What's the command? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We're given more details of this in Acts 1.8 when Jesus says to them, You shall be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Why does Christ send them out? Why does He send out His church? Because the dragon has been bound. Because Satan can no longer deceive the nations. And so the Gospel can go forth with power. Remember what was this, this very same apostle, John, said in his epistle, 1 John 3 8, on why Christ came to this world in the first place. Not that he will come, but why he came already to destroy the works of the devil. And what is the reason given in Hebrews 2 14 for Christ taking on our flesh, becoming like us? that through death He might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, people of God, the point here in our text this morning is to make it clear to us that we are living in the days of the millennium, in the days of the thousand years, in the days when Satan has been bound and Christ is plundering His kingdom by the preaching of the Word of God in the power of the Spirit as it goes forth as the light of the Gospel into a world of darkness. And that kingdom is no longer confined to one man or to one nation. It is now going forth to all the nations of the world. And Satan is not alive and well on planet earth, as some have said. Satan has been bound by our Savior. He's been chained, cast into the bottomless pit. Doesn't mean he's completely powerless. His influence is still here, but most of that still has to do with our sin. But the Gospel is going forth with power to all the world. It is bringing salvation to all the nations. And we know that to be true. Now, yes, the dragon is going to be released for a short time, for a little while, and do his devilish work at the end and deceive the nations once more. But his influence on this world at the present time has been significantly diminished. He's not yet thrown into the lake of fire, but he is bound. And the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is going forth to the ends of the earth. Now, beloved, think of what Jesus has done for you as His people. Think of what He's done for you personally. That you were dead in trespasses and sin. He did this when you were without hope and without God in this world. And He came and He defeated the enemy of His people by His life and by His death. 
Listen to the words from the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. We deserved hell. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And then listen carefully how to this ends. Verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. The cross is that final nail in Satan's coffin. And he is bound. And we should see, this is not an idle boast. This is not something that's supposed to be done in the future. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us already by His first coming. This is why He came. And this is what He's accomplished so that we, as His people, can be faithful witnesses of Him to a world that is lost in sin. And that is our calling as His church to serve the Lord our King. The King who has bound our enemy by His great person and His gracious work for us. We are to go forth in this time when Satan is bound, proclaiming the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now in the second part of our text, uh, it uses that same phrase, a thousand years, several times as well. The language again is symbolic. It refers to the time between Christ's first coming when He bound the dragon and His second coming when He will judge the dragon and cast Him into the lake of fire. Again, it's a, it's a symbolic number. It speaks of a long period of time. But for now, look at the souls of believers during this time period when the church is going forth with this glorious message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. What about God's people? What's happening to them? So let me read uh, verse 4 again. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the Word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or His image and had not received His mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, I think in order for us to understand this, again, we, we need to consider the days in which this was written. Because not only was there great and terrible sin and wickedness in this world and the nations, but the followers of Christ were undergoing great and terrible persecution in this world. Satan was bound. But the hearts of men and women were still bound in sin and wickedness. And not everyone wanted to hear the glorious gospel and now everyone wanted to be saved from the wrath to come. In fact, you remember, it doesn't take very long. James had been martyred in the very early days of the church, Acts 12. But by the time that this was written in, in Revelation, this book of Revelation in the late first century, the other apostles, the apostle Paul, had all been martyred. Only John was left of the original twelve. If you were not willing to say the emperor is Lord... Or at least, you know, drop some incense on the altar of some pagan temple as a token of worshiping the emperor, then you could be burned in the fire or thrown to the wild beasts in the Roman amphitheater to die at the pleasure of the crowds. 
And it's for that very reason, because the church faces persecution in this world, for that reason that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us this vision here, this portion of the vision that shows us what happens to believers when death happens, when the soul departs from the body. You know what happens, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And this is the promise of God to us as His people. We don't enter into soul sleep. We don't have to wait for the last resurrection, the general resurrection. It is to be present with the Lord even now. It is to reign with Him until He comes. And then we will come with Him. And then at that point, we will receive our glorious resurrected body so that we might be fully and completely saved in all that that means for us in Christ. And again, though, this is not for everyone in the world, is it? Because it is only for those who are in Christ. Verses 5 and 6. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in this first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. The first resurrection is that resurrection unto life that comes to a person who was dead in trespasses and sin through the work of the Holy Spirit that is applied to them in the salvation that Christ has won for them by His great work of redemption. That's part of the reason we picked those shorter catechism questions. Uh, And that's what salvation is, right? Salvation is not turning over a new leaf. It's not trying to reform our lives according to some written code. Salvation is life from the dead. It is resurrection. It's the first resurrection that we enjoy. That which was dead has come to new life in Christ. Salvation, let me say it again, is resurrection. The second resurrection is at the end of the age. And so those who are in Christ share in Christ's glorious reign in heaven. But the rest of the dead, that is, all the others who die, the unbelieving dead, do not come to life until the thousand years are over when they are resurrected. They go to the place uh, you know, of, of, the, of the wicked waiting for their judgment. But there is no resurrection for them uh, until this age comes to an end with the return of Christ. And when that age comes they will enter into the second death. That is, they will get what they deserve. They will get what they've earned by their sin and their rebellion. But you see, those who are in Christ, those who have reigned with Christ, those who are in Christ at His return, we're told this, the second death has no power over them at all. And beloved, that is what is yours in Christ. That when you die, it's it's not the end. It's just the beginning. It's your coronation when you enter into the very presence of Christ and you reign with Him. And you truly enjoy Him and glorify Him and you will do so forever and ever. Remember, Christ said this very thing to the thief on the cross. The thief repented. He asked Jesus to remember Him when He came into His kingdom. And what did Jesus say to him? Today... You will be with me in paradise. The repentant thief didn't have to wait until the end of the age. 
He died. And he was with Christ immediately. Because you see, that's what heaven is. It's to be with Christ. And to be with Him forever. The Apostle Paul confirms this in 2 Corinthians 5.8 when he first says, we walk by faith, not by sight. We're not governed by our circumstances. We know what the Bible says to us. We know what Christ has promised us. And so we look to the spiritual reality that is ours in Christ, not to the temporal circumstances of this world around us. And therefore, because we walk by faith and not by sight, we are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. We also have those words from this same apostle as he's contemplating the possibility of his own death. Philippians chapter 1. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's profit. It's better. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. That should be the desire of every Christian. If, if really, when we think about it, if you gave us a choice between being here or being with Christ in heaven, which would you choose? Paul says, I'd rather be there. But he also tells the Philippians, the Lord has more work for him. And so he continues until the Lord calls him home. But the desire of the heart of the believer is to be with Christ because it's far better. So, beloved, take these words to heart. Take the comfort that is here for you. No, this is not speaking about some future earthly rule of Christ. It's telling us about the saints who have gone before. It tells us what awaits you and I when we die. Because we are in Christ. Because we belong to Christ. Christ is reigning even now. And all the saints who have gone before, they are with Him, reigning with Him. And Jesus promises that when you die, Or when He comes again, whichever comes first, He will take you to Himself that where He is, there you may be also. And that truly will be glorious. We need to praise God for all the promises that are ours in Christ. Promises not just for now, but for all eternity. Promises that are greater than anything that we could ever imagine because we belong to Him. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray.